Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, if you know me, you know that I am passionate about entrepreneurship. I am passionate about people starting businesses and particularly physicians with so many things happening with burnout and, and other stuff. So I am Pleased today to welcome a guest, a guest that just like me is a serial entrepreneur. He's raising his family in the Washington, D.C. area. He's had a highly successful museum exhibit and signage business, which then they started applying to real estate and particularly focus on note investing, which one of our listeners, Dr. Young, and uh, had referred over. So thank you, Young, for that. Appreciate you, sir. Please help me welcome Mr. Martin Sines. Welcome, Martin. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, well, thank you, Martin. I think, um, gosh, in, in today's world, right, you know, the, the more things we can do to empower ourselves and get more information and think of other ways to help our family, you know, are, are things we should all be thinking about today. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think we live in a world where, whereby, you know, everyone needs to take control over their investments and they need to focus on cash flow with their investments as well. That's, that's critical. I think long gone are the days where you just kind of set it and forget it and then hope it's going to be there at the end. You need to take a more proactive role and, um, you know, working with experts and, and so forth to, just, uh, just make sure that you know that you have uh, a grip over over how you're building wealth for yourself in the present and future tense. For sure. Well, and you were kind enough to you've written a number of different books. The one you sent me, we're kind enough to send me, is called "Note Investing Made Easier," which um, really read well. And um, it's only a hundred pages or so, but it really lays out note investing. So I highly recommend folks check that out on uh, Amazon. But before we get to talking about note investing and distressed mortgages and all that kind of thing, I would love to just know about your history and how you got to here. So tell us a little bit about you, where you grew up and, and your career. Sure, sure. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll keep it short. You know, if, um, gosh, I'm, I'm, uh, it comes to mind that if we were going to do a segment on, on everything I did incorrectly as I got to the mortgage note industry, we would need like 10 hours. So, <laughs> so I'm just, just to let you know, brief, um, uh, I got my MBA in uh, 2001, got fired from a corporate job in 2004 because I, I just, I, I just did not fit into the mold. And my wife and I decided, Hey, you know, we need to go into business for ourselves. I mean, we were independent, we're free spirited. We need to take control over our situation. So we started a small business, the museum exhibit business that sold to the federal government. But what we found over the course of time is that we were working significantly more hours 
and it was very financially demanding to meet payroll and other things over the course of time. So we felt like it was the opposite of what we were trying to achieve, and that was you know financial freedom. So we started landlording. We started buying commercial and residential property in the D.C. area in 2009. And what we realized in about a four-year time span was that the, the properties, although they were appreciating in value, which is good capital gains, long-term play, they were not um, performing from a cash flow perspective. They were not yielding what we needed, what, what we were anticipating, given our financial aspirations. So all in all, we sold the business and in 2013, we kept all our properties. And in 2013, there I I turned to mortgage note investing as as a um, as you know my new business venture and, and something that I'm I'm definitely going to be doing for the rest of my life. So let me um, backtrack just to the buying the buildings in 2009. Of course, depending on when you bought it in 2009, gosh, that was a a really interesting time to buy buildings. What what month? You know, were you was that the beginning of the year when things were really really bad, or was that later on in the year? So so the first property was purchased in November of two thousand nine, November and the second property was purchased in January two thousand ten. So so um, now these were commercial spaces, and the DC market was pretty insulated given the federal government's presence in that sure. in, in the area. Sure. But with that said, um, it, it did open up some properties to us in that there was some investors that just needed to cash out for various reasons. So there, there was some real estate that you could, you could pick up with seller financing options and in other ways that allowed you to get in pretty easy. Hmm. But still even being there buying it, and I'm sure it was a relative low, um, maybe not the very, very bottom of the market, you know, it's still had a problem cash flowing them, huh? Making them well, work. It, you know, the, so with the commercial properties, um, we have six notes that, were, that are seller finance notes, and we took 15-year terms on those. So we intentionally knew it wasn't going to be um, cash flow into our expectations. Mm. It was really a long-term play that we picked up. However, you know, we didn't see that there was rent escalations and, and other things that would they would you know yield some additional cash flow over time so we still hold those properties and self-manage them however we realize that um, they're that, you know it's not going to produce the cash flow that, that we need to, to to live off of well I think there, there's some interesting notes and lessons just in that before we even get to the note investing stuff mm-hmm. what, what would be you know if there's a lot of us and physicians in particular that are interested in real estate, whether it's a surgery center and getting into that or buying into a practice or, or just investing into commercial real estate, like perhaps you did or residential real estate. What are some lessons you think you can pass on that might help someone? Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the number one tidbit that I've learned with investing is invest in assets that you can control and that cash flow for you. And if you do that, if you become a student of the asset class and, and you learn 
enough to understand the dynamics, understand the industry, the players, et cetera, et cetera, um, you, you will do well. So um, I'm not sure how that would translate out to the stock market. I have, I have literally no money in Wall Street. So I, and it's based on kind of that principle that I take in life. And, you know, I used to, you know, play the appreciation game. Hey, let me buy low, let me sell high, that kind of thing. But, you know, what I learned is that um, there was elements that were controlling whether I was, you know, whether or not that asset was going to appreciate. And those elements were outside my control. So with mortgage notes, with real estate, you know, I've, I've controlled it and um, it has paid me what I need to on an ongoing basis. That's great. Very good. Well, so you, 2013 comes around, you get into note investing. And um, what I, what I found was interesting about the book, of course, there's, um, which I recommend folks to, to check out and read was talking about the difference between first mortgages and second mortgages. Could you walk us through that a little bit in case a lot of the busy physicians don't have time to read the book? Yeah, absolutely. So when, when, one, when, a, when an individual goes into a mortgage branch or a bank branch and, they, and they, get a, they purchase a home and they fill out a mortgage application, they are essentially completing, um, they're, they're actually essentially getting two different instruments. One is a promissory note which is a promise to pay back the lender given a certain set of terms. And the other instrument is a mortgage or deed of trust, which attaches that, prop, that, that promise to the property. So um, what, what occurs is, is um, when, you know, over the course of time after those loans are originated, some become, some go into default whereby the borrower has not made a payment in, in 90 days. And when that happens, banks sell off those mortgages into the secondary, into the secondary market. And investors like myself, um, you know, pick up those, those assets at discounts and, and we work closely with the borrower to help them back on their feet with a payment plan they can afford while we make a profit for ourselves. So that's kind of the business model in, in a nutshell. So if, if I'm to sum up, basically someone has been delinquent for a long time and the banks tried various methods to try and get a hold of the person and they're just not responding. And so you come in and buy the, the note uh, for a fraction of perhaps what it could be worth with the idea of trying to turn it around. Am I understanding that right? Get the people start paying again. Yes, absolutely. In um, 2006, my wife and I had purchased a home in the DC area at the height of the market. And literally, you know, within months of purchasing the property, it, it dropped in $140,000 of value. And this was at a time we were, you know, still getting our business going and it was in an infancy stage. And so we became delinquent in our mortgage and uh, with our mortgage. And I tried to contact this large organization numerous times. I tried to send in monthly payments. And what they essentially told me was, unless I was sending them a check for $20,000, which was full reinstatement, they didn't want to hear from me. 
And, um, you know, I just got rudeness. I got, you know, cold shoulder. Um, and, and it was really kind of like, um, I don't know, demeaning experience and, uh, you know, no one to blame, but myself, we were trying to launch our business. And so, you know, herein comes 2013 and I'm in a much better place. Um, you know, financially solvent and I get a chance to buy a mortgage like I used to hold as a bar at a discount, you know, 30, 30, 40 cents on the dollar. And I'm able, and based on that discount that I'm purchasing that note, I'm able to work out favorable terms given the borrower's current budget situation and still make a very good profit for myself. So it was kind of really a, uh, a silver lining on the whole thing. So walk through us a typical renegotiating the terms, you know, give, mm-hmm. it, give us a few examples of what that looks like from the borrower perspective. Sure. So, um, you know, when we get, when we get a hold of the borrower, well, let me back up first. Um, myself, uh, you know, I've helped over a thousand borrowers and, and, uh, you know, I've been doing this a number of years and now we have a whole asset management team that, that helps bars with loan modifications. And the number one attribute that we need uh, our, our team to have is compassion and to be genuine. And so, um, you know, that's very important that you kind of start out with, with the right character. And um, because this is, this is how it, everything will, will be derived off of that. And so when we talk to a bar, the first thing we do is we want to be extremely transparent. Um, you know, unlike the story that I told you with, um, you know, 2006, you know, I couldn't get details. I couldn't understand why it is this was happening and, you know, how I could, you know, solve it, how I could come to resolution. So we let the borrowers know, hey, there's, you know, there's a past due interest arrears in this amount you haven't paid since this period of time. There's a per diem clock that's ticking. And we explain what that is. Every day they don't make a payment, interest gets added to their account. We explain late fees. We, we, we try to understand where they are at right now. Um, you know, they may have defaulted a few years ago, but they got their job back. They, um, you know, they, they got their health back. Something happened that, that has tra- changed their situation. So we understand where they're at right now from a financial perspective. And then we start to build, uh, we start to build options. And we normally give the bar three options to get back on their feet, given their current situation. So we allow them to make a choice. So not only are we educating them and being transparent, we, we try to give them the opportunity to, get, to um, be empowered by making a choice in terms of how they want their plan to go. So in terms of, of giving them choices, like are you, there's basically three things I think of. There's the principal amount, the interest rate, and um, the length of time that they finance it for. Right. Yes. Those are kind of the three things you can play with. Am I missing anything? No, no, you, you got it. Um, the rule of thumb with options is the more the borrower can put down, the lower their monthly payment's going to be. So it's important that they put down something. Now, you know, we're not looking for full reinstatement. We're not looking for uh, them to stroke 
a $25,000 check. You know, very few people have that kind of cash just, you know, at, the, at hand. So, you know, we're looking for something, whereas, you know, maybe they owe 25,000. So maybe if they put down a thousand, then we will reduce the interest rate and the monthly payments will be this. If they put down 2000, you know, then, then you know, their monthly payments will be lower. And, and then option three, if they put down 3000, something like that, something where they can show they have some skin in the game and there's some commitment on their side to, uh, to you know, start this new relationship. So in a sense, they're, they're putting down a down payment again in a lot of cases. So they're, it almost gets treated like we're starting all over from scratch. Um, so you, you get a down payment and then like what are typical interest rates you might charge somebody? So we're very, we're very conscious that, that we keep the interest rates close to where they were, where, where they are. We don't ever go above what the interest rate is per the terms of the note. Very important that, you know, that's understood. So if they got their mortgage and they were at 7%, then option one may be at 7%, mm. but option three might be at five and a half percent like that. So we, we try to keep it in the ballpark of, of where, what, how the promissory note was originated and never to exceed what the promissory note stipulates. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you don't like go up to 10% or 12% or something like that. No, because, because here it is, we purchased this note at a discount. We, we can extend, we can extend forgiveness to the bar based on our discount, a discounted purchase and still make favorable returns. And the whole thing is, is that is that if we do this and we help the borrower give them a payment where they can finally pay off this loan and get and get past this scenario, they they will be more appreciative and they will make payments to us on a on a timely basis, and it's and we have sustainment of cash flow, which is the rule of thumb with investing, is to have long term streams of cash flow. If we give, if we, if we get went and stuck it to someone and jacked up the rate and jacked up the monthly payment and, and they, they, they saw, they saw no light of day, then they would stop paying eventually. So it would just be bad business to do that. Gotcha. No, I, I think that's great. Because that's, that's what I was thinking as I read the materials. Was like, oh, I wonder if maybe the increase in the interest rate or what that looks like. Because it's very similar, very, very similar to what we do in the land business where we go and we buy an asset for 25 or 30 cents on the dollar quite often. Then we try and sell it, you know, for uh, a dollar plus with interest. So we, we do play with the interest rate there. You know, we might charge 10% or 8% interest or something like that. Um, of course, they weren't paying on it before. It's a brand new buyer than an existing person. So, yeah, and that's a commercial. That's a commercial exchange. You know, here we're we're really talking about primary homeowners, right? Their families live in the home, and so it's a whole different experience. It wouldn't be crazy if you you know got nine percent or ten percent on a deal if it's a commercial transaction and the numbers worked for everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. So. Let's just kind of walk back to the beginning. Let's say someone says, gosh, this sounds interesting. Sounds like there's some possibilities here. Um, I like the idea of buying something really cheap and turning around and, and um, selling it for more or just getting an income stream off of that with a down payment. Um, walk us through how people can find these kinds of, of opportunities. 
So, so um, what what we decided over the course of time is that we needed as a company to come up with a legacy play. And and reason being is we're we're here creating. 30-year streams of income. We're modifying these loans, creating 30-year mortgages, essentially. And so we want we wanted to create an investment vehicle whereby we can bring investors on board so they can share in the rewards, share in the profit of our company. So we launched BQuest Funds in uh, we lost B, we launched BQuest Funds this year. And as, a, as an income fund that's set up as an evergreen fund. And so um, as we take on new investors, we bring you know, seasoned mortgages into the portfolio, whereby uh, we, we make investor payments on a monthly basis, plus having a compounding option. So, so what's neat about that is that it is, um, it's also a legacy play for borrowers. So it allows us to further build relationships with our borrowers beyond the initial transaction of creating a loan modification for them. So imagine we create a loan modification for someone two years ago, and we move that asset now that it's seasoned into our income fund. And if the borrower has a question or a problem or, or something they need to know, they can call in and most likely talk to the same person that helped them out two years ago. So it's really a, a place where it gives the bars a sense of uh, um, uh, of comfort, knowing that you know we are we, we're treating them in a very humane fashion and in a very respectful fashion over the course of time, and that helps from a collectability standpoint, one hundred percent. Okay, great. So that's definitely people can can partner with you, go in the fund. But what if they want to do it themselves? Where where could they look for deals? like this to find distressed borrowers? So, um, you know, I, I kind of mentioned a few options in the book, Note Investing Made Easier. Um, you can go to noteinvestingmadeeasier.com and there is, there's some training programs. Um, there's some mastermind groups where, where we share deal flow. There are some online exchanges like uh, Paperstack, or loanexchange.com. And, and now the thing is, um, I do want to caution, I do want to caution anyone kind of venturing out on their own to really have some type of formal education before you, you delve into it. Because it's, you know, as lucrative as the industry can be, it can also, it can also wipe you out, right? It's buyer beware. And there's a number of pitfalls that, um, that are out there and without um, a strong sense or some type of formal ground, foundational grounding, um, you know, you, you could really be, it could be very risky for you. So if, if we look at um, the exchanges are one way, sounds like having relationships with banks is another way that people get deals. Yes. So um, we've uh, in, in my book, Note Investing Fundamentals, and, and I apologize if I'm like, you know, plug in this or that. I, 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 I'm just referencing where, where, you know, where I came up with a notion or I wrote about three pillars of note investing. The first pillar being identity, the second pillar being mechanics and the third being community. So if you really want to position yourself for um, being a player in the industry, you really need to work on your identity first and foremost, because people need to know who you are 
as well as you need to know who you are yourself and how you're gonna operate in the space. Mechanics is knowing the day-to-day -day operation. So um, being the auto mechanics, so to speak, as Michael Gerber um, wrote about in Emeth. And then the third is community. And as you unfold your identity and, and work through transactions and develop your mechanics, then you will also develop a, a community around you that will support you deal flow wise. And what you mean by that is basically how to find, how to find them essentially that you make, you make a reputation, maybe you start in some of the exchanges and you build relationships with people to, to find the deals. Am I hearing One, that right? 100%. It's, um, you know, I have bought countless notes off of peers. So people in the industry, you know, and they know you, and then they're selling notes. They need to recapitalize, whatever the case and, and you're one of the calls they make and you're easy to work with and you know, you know your business so you can vet that note quickly and you have the capital to uh, deploy. So um, you will be on the short list for phone calls. Well, I think what's, what's so interesting is, as um, people really just kind of have to evaluate um, who they are and, and what they're interested in, that the... Um, there's the two worlds really to me of being a investor versus a business owner investor. And what we've been just talking about are, are both of those two things, right? Where one, you can invest really relatively passively through a fund, like the, the one you mentioned, or two, you know, you learn how to do it yourself, right? And you build the team around you and um, build a reputation and those kinds of things, which I can certainly relate to and what I've been able to do in, in a different world. Um, what would you say are, are kind of um, pros and cons with each of those two things? Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Um, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and they were asking about the fund and and, um, you know, they immediately threw, we pay, our fund pays 8%. We pay an 8% PREF. There's no fees associated to it. Um, we make our payments on a monthly basis. And it's very simple to understand. Borrowers make their payments in every month. And we pay our investors with those borrower payments every month. There's no leverage in the fund. So all the mortgage notes are owned by the fund. And, and investors are first in line. I am the largest investor in, in my own fund. So I have the most amount of money in it. And so, and so um, now I was talking to this individual and they were like, well, 8%, I'm doing blah, blah, blah with my Apple stock. And I'm like, well, you know, that's great. I, I don't follow the market. So I don't know what Apple's doing or, you know, anything. Tomatoes doing, bananas doing. I don't know what anything's doing. I, I kind of stay in my own little zone that way. And, and so we're not, we're not some people's guy, so to speak. I'm not your guy at 10%. I'm not your guy at 12%. What I think is so important to know is that you can find funds, you can find investments that are going to pay you a much higher yield, but there's always risk associated to that. You know, our portfolio is a portfolio made up of all performing seasoned notes and with a 65% investment to value. So there's good coverage on these notes. And so it's a very safe, it's like a, having a safe CD, 
at 8%. And, but um, for others that, that feel like they want to be more on the upside, you know, you're going to have the, you're, you're going to have a lot more risk associated. Um, you know, you can buy notes and, and you may lose money on some of these notes and, and you may make 30, 40% return on, on other notes. So you have to be fully immersed. I think that's the part that kind of gets people is that, is that you want, sometimes you want the 30, 40% return, but you want to put in the 8% effort. So, so you have to know where you're at with things. Sure. I mean, putting a time investment right into it in order, in order to, to understand it. Um, which I thought one of, one of, um, the interesting things about this business compared to like rentals, you know, usually you buy rental real estate or, um, what, what you do. And unless you're getting seller financing, you often have to put down a large enough down payment to buy something, right? Five, 10, 15, 20% in order to get conventional financing, which if you're looking at a 200,000 or 300,000 or $400,000 or, or more, you have to put down at least 10 grand, if not 15 or 20 to, to acquire the asset. Whereas if someone is the business owner and is buying these notes, right? You can probably buy what, three or four notes pretty easy for that yes. same amount of money. 100%. So real estate to me, and I own real estate, commercial and residential is risky. It's, um, it is, uh, you're, you're, you're buying less of the asset type. So you buying one property, because you have to put down 20 25% versus you picking up three, four notes, um, you are probably paying near par for, for that asset, what's the market going rate? You may get it at 90 cents on the dollar, not to, not in today's market, but you know, at some other time, maybe 80 cents if you're lucky. Um, but with notes, I'm buying these notes anywhere from 20 to 40 cents on the dollar. And I'm doing that on a regular basis. And I know what I'm doing. So I know that I have confidence that I'm converting that into and to par at some point when I'm getting a loan modification or we're getting payoffs, we're getting tons of payoffs nowadays, given where rates are at and where equity positions and properties are at. People are just saying, well, I don't want 7%. I'm just going to pay you off. So, um, and they pay us off at full, at full payoff amount. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think you have more diversification with notes and, but you have to know what you're doing. You have to be able to understand property valuation, lien validity, um, ownership, uh, credit reporting, skip tracing, um, collateral review. I mean, I could, I could go on and on with all the things that you need to know. And the one thing you don't know could be the thing that burns you and, um, and, and brings you to buy an investment that's worth nothing at the time of purchase, which, which we've all done it in the industry. Well, certainly if you're making 30 or 40 or 50%, right, you can afford to have, if you buy, 10 of them that work out that way and you have, or nine of them that work out that way and one doesn't, you certainly have gotten the rate of return to make up for one, one loser. Um, have. Yes. Cause yeah. it's, it, it seems like when that happens. So walk me through the, the winners we get, right. You know, buy something for 6,000, you turn around and, and you get the person to start paying again. So now, 
the thing might be worth 20 or 30,000 that you can sell to someone after they've been paying for like a year. So I think, I think we understand that. What about the ones that don't work out though? You know, why, why do they become worthless? Like, can't you take like the asset itself, for example, at that point? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. This is not one where we got wiped, but it's an example of, of um, something that, that underperformed. And that is we purchased a property outside San Diego. Oh, not a property. We purchased a mortgage note for about 55,000. We put about 5,000 worth of legal in. So we were all in about 60,000. This is going on currently, by the way. We purchased this about a year ago and um, the borrower just let the property go. We took it back through foreclosure. No one bought it at the auction. Um, the property should have been worth about 900,000. They owed us about 200,000. And so we thought, hey, we're gonna do well with this. Well, you know, it turn, turns out that the bar um, left the property. We took possession just last week, changed the locks. And, and we realized that, you know, there's, there's tons of debris and junk and every, everything and then cabinets are stripped out. So the property's worth about, about um, 630,000. The first is, it's is a junior lien that we, we own at about 200K. First is worth 500,000. So, so what we're, we're looking at now, we thought the property was worth 900. We realized the property is worth about 630. The first mortgage, which is the mortgage in, in front of us is worth 500 to pay it off. So we have 130K cushion. So after, after commissions are paid to realtors, we're probably walking away with 100,000 and we paid 55,000, or I'm sorry, 60,000 all in. So we're gonna get a profit of 40,000 for a $60,000 investment. That is underperformance. So like in that case where, where you get wiped out maybe is you foreclose on it, but then you, you sell it for break even or even a loss if you had to, I guess, just to walk away from it, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. Cause, cause you don't know, you know, there's always a risk not knowing what's inside, but I mean, I think you have that risk, even if you rehab, right. Even if you real estate invest, you know, there's black mold, right. You open up a wall and you see black mold. And before you know it, you're quarantining the whole house off. Sure. Sure. So there's definitely times that it doesn't work. There's, there's plenty of times where it does. Um, people can find the notes directly through banks. Like we said, there's some, some exchanges mm -hmm. where people could buy them. They could do passively through a fund like, like yours. Um, one of the things that, that was interesting that you laid out um, was really the, the due diligence that you, you kind of referred to a little bit in, in our conversation now, which, um, there's the multiple things and, and none of it sounded like it was super hard, but it certainly does, does take some time. Um, and you might even have to hire an attorney at times when you invest in these things. Yes. So we have a whole, um, we assemble a due diligence team made up of people that we have on staff along with some strategic partners, along with a collateral review firm. So we bring in a team of about five or six individuals when we're, when we're vetting a pool of notes. So, I mean, we're, we purchase notes, we could purchase notes, um, you know, 500K up to about 3 million a clip. So, and we're, we're, buying, we're buying every, you know, 
every two to three months. So, um, you know, with that said, we have, you have to be proficient. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it you know, it sounds, it sounds reasonable, everything I said, right? Lean validity, property evaluation, you know, credit reports, skip tracing. But when you have to do that on 200 loans and keep all the data organized and manage so you can analyze what you have at the end of the day and put in a, a coherent bid, and and wrap up the deal it, it becomes pretty daunting for sure well especially when you're doing that volume right that's why you have staff and you hire people around you to help scale um yeah is- there's a risk in not it, our our industry so you know you can be you can be the lifelong rehabber and whereby you buy a few properties rehab them sell them buy a few new prop buy four few more properties and ride that roller coaster rate wave into retirement. But with notes, you have to scale. Uh, There's just no other way to to grow. I mean, you have, um, you know, compliance is growing in our industry with with rules and regulations. You have government uh, moratoriums that are going on. There's a lot of complexity to it. And and so um, like anything else, if you have the systems and the equipment and the team, to, to do a 200 note opportunity um, and, you know, you know, you have economies of scale, right? So you can do two notes with it or you can do 200 notes with it. Your fixed costs are still going to be the same. So you might as well, you might as well scale up to 200 notes to, to really make a run at it. So give me um, an idea in the book, you mentioned that a lot of the opportunities you had like in 2013, 14, 15, were delayed, of course, from 2008-9 crisis, and that the margins have kind of been shrinking. Um, I don't know when you wrote the book, but how have things changed since the book came out? Looks like it was maybe three, four years ago. Yeah, yeah, I wrote the book in 2000, in May of 2017, and um, prices have increased on the notes. So it's interesting because, the price on the note, which is which is normally um, set up as percentage of unpaid principal balance, has gone up. So if you have, a, say, a fifty thousand dollar unpaid principal balance, you may have paid, you know, five six thousand for that same note in two thousand fifteen, and you may be paying, you know, fifteen thousand eighteen thousand for that same note today. Wow. So, so prices has gone up and it sounds like, well, you know, that's not good for anyone involved, right? When, when, when that kind of a dramatic increase happens. However, what needs to be understood is equity coverage on these notes, the quality of these notes, the um, where the borrowers at today is drastically different than where folks were at in 2015. So that property may have increased 100,000 over the course of five years. So you have more equity coverage. Plus, if it's a junior lien mortgage, they've been paying down their first mortgage, which is also further building equity cushion for yourself. So um, with the coronavirus happening, we know that there's been more delinquencies out there. But of course, that's in the short term. Are you seeing more defaults from people than your existing portfolio or 
delays or what's that like first in the existing portfolio? So in our industry, we look for a 90% collectability percentage. So in other words, if you, if you have 10 performing loans and one of the 10 become non-performing, you're still within, you're still well within the level of acceptance in the industry. And, and again, that's attributed to the fact that you bought these at a discount initially. So you have a little room to play with. Um, now we've been trending all year at 93%, even during COVID. Our mortgages don't fall under the CARE Act, so so which um, which is which is good. However, with that said, we still have a forbearance uh, strategy in place when a borrower does call in and, and does need some assistance. We do have some program options that we crafted for for borrowers, but what we're finding is honestly, is people are paying their mortgages. And that's not just with our portfolio. We're, we're talking to other industry experts and we're finding that very few are, uh, you know, are for very few of their bars are forbearing too. And what, what I like to think, maybe it's ego driven, but I like to think that our relationships in place have have accounted for something with people paying. Um, I think a lot of, I think in a lot of cases, People are making different decisions with their buying purchases, so they're not going out and you know drinking every Friday night or you know eating dinner every Saturday night or what have you. They're staying in more. They're maybe not going to get their nails done as much. I don't know, or, or maybe they're just not paying their credit card. But one thing they are doing is they're placing more emphasis on where they live because they're spending more time where they live than they used to. Interesting, because I've been reading reports from Black Knight, you know, which seemed to have indicated that at least for a short time, delinquency spiked and, you know, more and more mortgages are becoming more than 90 days past due. Um, on, on one hand, I, I would have thought that it, it would have added to more delinquencies or forbearances or whatever. But on the other hand, that maybe it was becoming an opportunity too you know, to pick up notes. Um, yeah, I, I in, think, in I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be a spike to the whole distressed debt industry, regardless of asset class, right? Credit cards, unsecured, medical debt, you know, mortgages, et cetera. I mean, that, that's going to be a given, given COVID and we're not, we're far from out of, out of the woods on things. Um, however, um, you know, we, we're just kind of really focused on monitoring our pool of performing loans. And if there's an issue, we, we watch when people are making payments. If there's an issue, you know, we have the relationships with a lot of these borrowers. A lot of mortgage companies don't have, you know, they're just, they're, you know, you just get a call from your mortgage company and you, you've never spoken to that person. But with us, you know, chances are you have spoken to someone on our team at some point to work things out. So, you know, we're, our, our just strategy is just to keep plugging away with focusing on relationships. Interesting. Well, I'm glad to hear things have gone well, despite these, these crazy times where I know a lot of physicians have, have been hurting at least for a short time. And I think most, most doctors are kind of back, back uh, close to, to where they were pre COVID. Um, any, as we, part today, Martin, any other words of wisdom or thoughts you would like to leave us with? I, I think there's just, there's never been a more critical time 
in our lives to focus on building additional streams of income. And that's why we've set up Bequest funds. You can put money in and, and not just have it accumulate, but have it create an additional stream of, of income for yourself. So whether you do that through Bequest funds or you do it through some other means, I mean, I think that um, you're at the right place listening to Dave's podcast and figuring out how to uh, take control of your finances and ultimately grow, grow your finances. But if anyone has any interest in Bequest funds, you can go to bqfunds.com. That's bqfunds.com. And, um, and yeah, Young has been in with us since day one and um, uh, Young Ann who invited us to the program. And we just look forward to um, just, just building our family because we, we do call it a Bequest family. So I appreciate your time, Dave, and having me on. All right, my friends. Well, we will drop some links in, in the show notes. If you have um, any questions or want to check out some of the books and materials that have been mentioned here, I do highly recommend um, that book, Note Investing Made Easier, because I think if you're, you're more the business owner, entrepreneurial type, and you want to learn how to do it, it really lays out a lot of great great things for you. Or if you're, you're wanting to do it passively and just want to understand more about the process, I think it's great for that too. All right, my friends, well, that wraps up another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians. Pro, uh, I can't even say the name of my own podcast today. The Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle.